You are listening to I'm Just Here for the Popcorn. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tom. And today we're talking Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, part one. We are almost done. This is crazy. So this is based off, what, the seventh book? The, yeah. the final book? Two movies? I wonder what, what gave them the push to make it two. Was it money? Or, I mean, were they the first ones to do it? I don't know. Well, you said when we recorded The Goblet of Fire that they had kind of had that in the back of their mind because there's so much in these books. And I'm sure money was part of the decision to influence it. But also, like, this is like a goodbye to a series that we've been with for years at this point. So I really felt like they wanted to do it justice. That's true. Uh, So this came out almost a decade after the first film sorcerer's stone we're, we're a decade from the beginning this whole past decade the aughts we've spent with harry potter like every year every other year there's a harry potter movie in theaters and it's done reasonably well at each time you know it was always in the top three or two films uh and now we you know say goodbye to it i didn't realize how much i like I hadn't I guess how often I hadn't seen this one because when we were watching it I was like oh yeah I remember about that like it's really like while it's always a part of um nostalgia for me um and it's always like a part of growing up and it's so important to me it is always something that maybe I've taken for granted that like I need to revisit more often just this world yeah that I, I as I was watching there's things like I don't know what that is I'm gonna have to ask you and I'm gonna. I've been waiting for this podcast to to record so we can. I can ask you a certain question about how did this come into play. We try not to talk about uh, the movies after we watch them. Like if we we watched this last night and we are recording first thing in the morning, but we refuse to like talk to each other about our feelings about it because we want to save it for the podcast. Um, which maybe is why these end up so long. So going forward with our halloween movies we might have a different format to try to tighten it up we are getting a new couch so we got rid of the other one and we had nowhere to sit last night um so what we did was we blew up the air mattress that we use for guests in the living room and just like had laid on the air mattress with all the pillows and watch this movies watch this movie and it was such a fun experience too it's like i know we spend every day together, but we had a sleepover of sorts, even though we, you know, sleep in the same bed anyway. I just love, yeah, it was different for us. Uh, a cozy bed, you know, we got all the blankets and propped up on pillows for our backs. Um, I really liked it. Let's see if we can try to do it again. I've seen people during quarantine do outdoor movie nights and they'll get their air mattress and they'll put it in their backyard and they'll get a projector screen and since we live in an apartment, um, that's not a possibility for us. So I feel like it was like a kind of a light version of that where we were able to do it. And even though we are getting a couch later today, I'd still do that again. I'd still, you know, have that experience of the the movies and the, the air mattress and the blanket. Because we took the TV out of our bedroom, so we didn't watch TV before bed. So like the living room is the only place where we can watch TV. So we highly recommend if you feel like you want to do something different, switch up your movie watching routine, blow up an air mattress, grab all the pillows in the place, and turn off the lights and watch the movie. Okay, so the movie uh, we're discussing is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Uh, year 7 at Hogwarts. Oh wait, no Hogwarts this year. 
We don't even get to see Hogwarts in this film. No, we will next one, but yeah, it was a, it was very different. De- very different kind of film that broke away from the plot structure of the other ones. Release date, November 19th, 2010. We're in a different decade now. Right now, it's this film came out 10 years ago. As if I didn't need another reason to feel old, Tom. Thank you. And now we're getting to the stage like I'm no longer in high school or any other grade school. I'm in college now. So it's... I started college 10 years ago, so like that's getting further and further away. Oof. Uh, the budget was uh, $250 million, but it's shared with the second film. So you could cut it in half and make it $125 million, but that doesn't necessarily mean like they spent equal amounts on either film. So let's just say $250 million for two films. Uh, but they get box office for both films. The box office here... million, which makes it only a few million under Sorcerer's Stone. It's like like maybe less than 10 million. Uh, So it's number two of the first seven films in box office. Number three in 2010. I've been wondering like why it's been less than the Sorcerer's Stone consistently. Like, I mean, Sorcerer's Stone is great, but it's not the best movie out there. And I, I think like the more I think about it, maybe it's that kind of thing where it something releases something new something that everybody's talking about so they watch it you know like i think this year it was tiger king in the past it's been stranger things and it just gets so much buzz that everybody feels like they have to be included in on it and then at a certain point it kind of became like oh that's just harry potter it's like a kid thing when it's definitely not but you know what i mean like it it lost a little bit of the maybe initial excitement when there was so much buzz around it I think um, the world around Harry Potter changed as well because other companies picked up to the fact, oh, we could do our own version of that. Or they had their own series. Like superheroes became really big. We weren't in like MCU era, but you had Spider-Man and X-Men. Maybe their box office or another big, you know, like Star Wars coming back. Some of that may have taken away from Harry Potter. Maybe it came out on the wrong month sometimes. I do think, What's easy about the first film, it's very accessible. You don't, you, you know, when we d- even do a rewatch, we like to start with the first one. What if someone see, oh, the third one's in theaters. I haven't even seen the first two. I want to, but I didn't get around to seeing the first two, so I'm going to skip it. So what this series needs is people like a retained audience. And some people just drop off from it. Even I dropped off for the sixth film, but I came back here. That makes sense. I think... What's really nice about Harry Potter, and I think I'm getting a little way off topic here so we can bring it back in a minute, but is that it's timeless and like it's not even just our generation that, you know, picked it up and read it or, you know, when it was popular, it continues on. So it was number three in 2010. Uh, Competition for the year, number one for the box office for 2010 was Toy Story 3 at 1.1 billion. Also, at the time, it felt like it was ending the series had grown up with that series as well so it's interesting they're both ending around the same time uh that came out in june uh so a few months earlier uh number two alice in wonderland which came out in march that was at one billion that's the tim burton live action version so that's two disney films that beat harry potter warner brothers property but they came out in different parts of the year and i'll just put in number four because i really like this film it came out in july inception uh, 800 some million uh, 
That's another Warner Brothers property. I love my Nolan films. In terms of films that came out in November as well, there's a few, but I'll just mention Megamind. I think that was like a DreamWorks property. At, at, that was 17th. And one of your favorite Disney films, you want to guess? Tangled? Yeah, that was 8th. I love Tangled. You love the TV series. I know we're getting off topic, but... Hey, yeah, when that, we went to world. Disney, yeah. we just saw it on the television and it was like, we just put something on to keep on in the background. And it was like, wait a minute, this is actually good. So we watched it in the airport on the way home. And then when we got home, good times. So the director is David Yates returning. This is his third consecutive film. The writer, Steve Close, his sixth film. The score was composed by Alexandre Desplat. Uh, He's, he does both Deathly Hallows films. And I was looking at his resume. He's very prolific since the year 2005. He's doing like four to six films every single year. So hats off to him. He's worked on a few George Clooney films, The Shape of Water, and a lot of Wes Anderson films like Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel. That's a, That would be a cool series, wouldn't you think, Wes Anderson? Absolutely. I love the like... Wes Anderson feel of movies and then kind of like seeing that replicated and other things like we watched a series of unfortunate events I think last year the tv show on Netflix and that definitely had like Wes Anderson vibes for me so I feel like I'm like I appreciate that aesthetic a lot so I'd love to do that series production company was Warner Brothers we watched on our old blu-ray set I have that ultimate edition from you know 10 years ago it's on it looks great uh so if you, you do want a copy, the library typically has it. You know, this film's 10 years old. I don't think people are jumping to see it. Runtime, two hours and 26 minutes, like in the middle of the pack. Like most film, Harry Potter films are run about that length. It was nominated for two Oscars, art direction and visual effects. It covers the first 24 chapters. I had to look this up. It covers the first 24 chapters of Deathly Hallows which I think there's 37 total if you include the epilogue. And I, the working print, according to David Heyman, of Deathly Hallows would have been five and a half hours long. I mean, they could have cut it down to a two and a half hour or three hour film if they wanted, but there would be a lot missing. I would totally watch that though. And I think so many people would, but it's just not conventional to put a movie out that's that length. But I would love to see like a TV show like I know Netflix wouldn't do it because Netflix doesn't own the rights to do it but like I would love to see like a more long drawn out TV show like a Stranger Things or something like that where you could really dive in deep to these stories and just this world oh I would love that okay should we get to the plot Absolutely. And before we do that, we would just like to remind everybody that this uh, reflection contains spoilers. If you haven't seen Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and you would still like to, put a pause on this podcast, head to your local library and pick up a copy, watch it, and then come back. And we are so excited to chat with you about it. And if you do like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review. Share with your friends, you know, let people know uh, about us. That really helps us out, um, helps us get seen. We're finishing up Harry Potter and we are about to do some Halloween stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun and we're excited. We're, we've got a tentative series planned for November and then it's going to be all Christmas and that's going to be awesome. So yeah, please share. We'd love to be able to reach more people and talk about movies with more people. Um, but 
yeah, let's get into it. We start in a very kind of sad and somber way. So for us to uh, take notes on this and talk about it, we broke it up into three different acts. Uh, The first act uh, is from the start of the film to the trio's arrival at 12 Grimmauld Place, uh, the Seven Potters. So yeah, it's off to a really dark start, as always. Well, the back half of the films. Uh, You can see the Warner Brothers logo is actually rotting, and there's this screeching noise. We'll find out what that screeching refers to a little bit later on. Horcrux. Um, But it, it opens on like a really tight focus on the new minister's eyes and he looks very you know determined and almost like angry it's um bill nye not the science guy the british one rufus scrimmador yeah it's we got a a very brief introduction to him he doesn't last very long in this movie um and I think it's like very much like the ministry is trying to control what they can't control. Uh, But shit is crazy out there. He has a really cool opening speech, even though, you know, he's not long for this world. He says, these are dark times. There's no denying. Our world has perhaps faced no greater threat than it does today. But I say this to our citizenry. We, ever your servants, will continue to defend your liberty and repel the forces that seek to take it from you. Your ministry remains strong. And then a couple scenes later, the ministry falls. So, <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's, going, it's going real well for them. But um, you get to see the trio as well and kind of where they are in this. Um, Hermione's deciding to protect her parents, which is really for the greater good. She's going off to try to save the freaking world and... That's the best way she can to protect them is to erase her from their memories and send them off somewhere far away. And you could tell that that was very hard for her. And I I don't think I realized it as much when I read the books or when I saw the movie the first few times, but most of the places that she picks to um, apparate to are places that she's been with her parents. And I think that that's like something that she's holding on to this hurt that's like she's kind of like silently dealing with because she knows there's more important things at, you know, like Ron's a little more vocal about the things that he's feeling. Um, Harry's, you know, vocal and like very focused on this one mission. And Hermione kind of keeps that all to herself. But this was like a really like, hard scene to watch where she just erases herself from her parents existence and then walks off yeah i did notice that too you know they go to downtown london it's like oh my parents took me here to see like a musical or something and then like or this this park or like these this wooded area because she she does have to make that sacrifice and she can't talk to anyone about it you know and it's probably very hard for her on top of you know being on the run from death eaters and dealing with this uh magical device that seeks to corrupt whoever's nearby i like to think that maybe she did talk to ron about it a little bit because again we only really get to see hermione and ron's relationship through harry's eyes for the most part so they're a lot closer this movie which i love it really speaks to my um ron and ron hermione shippingness um but they're a lot closer so maybe she was able to open up to him 
but still hard for her. You know, I always thought you were my Hermione and I'd be your own. Yeah. There's there's a lot of cute moments they have together. Yeah, it's finally finally coming together for them. Even when uh, she's mad at him, I think they're still cute. Yeah. Like, together. Um, one thing I, I like the little uh, fun fact was people may know this. Uh, her mother was Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones. So Harry sends off the Dursleys. Like, and I think it, it feels like they're, they don't really get to talk, but it, it almost seems like they're on the same page now. The Dursley's like, okay, it's not safe. We will leave. And yeah. Harry's waiting. Was Harry expecting people to come pick him up or something? Or Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he was given orders because otherwise he probably would have just like fucking ran and did what he had to do or went on a hunt for Horcruxes without Hermione or Ron and that wouldn't have gone well for anybody. But yeah, like the Dursleys are realizing the severity of it. I think a lot of muggles are realizing that something's going on and the Dursleys have insight that there's this whole wizarding world, you know, that's running parallel to theirs or existing within theirs, however we want to phrase it. And they just look utterly wrecked as they leave their homes. And I, I, I don't pity the Dursleys at all because they were... Harry grew up in, a, in an abusive home that just is, is fucked up. They are terrible people. Um, but I think that they're a good representation of muggles in general, kind of having to deal with this chaos in the world, specifically chaos directed at them, because the Death Eaters don't want, they don't care for the muggles. They want, they think that they're more powerful. They want to be in charge. They kill muggles. They get rid of the muggle-born, and um, I mean, we'll see that a little bit more later, but kind of having to leave or being in this place of, like, discomfort, you know, and the way that they're, like, leaving their home and kind of having to go and, and keep safe and protect themselves and everything is so uncertain. While I don't pity the Dursleys, I do think that that's representative of what a lot of muggles might be feeling right now and you can kind of see a little bit of insight into that before we you know move on to getting into the wizarding world again so two things about harry um when he's walking around the jersey's place it looks like it's been emptied out the wallpaper is horrible but you also get a sense uh of everything the jersey's did to remove themselves from the environment you know, and Harry looks back at his old cupboard, you know, because a lot of ties to the first one in this. And the other thing is, I don't know how Harry got this. Please explain this to me. That shard of glass, that like mirror, he just has that. I don't remember him having that earlier. And he thinks he sees Dumbledore in it. That would be movie magic trying to, you know, put a bunch of things together that they left out of other ones. Um, I believe that I I think Sirius gave him the mirror. Sirius had one and he had another in the fifth one. It allowed them to communicate later on. Um, I, again, I could be mistaken because, guys, I it's been so long. I'm, we're working through the third one right now, so we're rereading the series. But it has been so long since I've really read the books, and that's why we're coming back to it. So I might have forgotten a couple details and, you know, misremembered things. So please let us know if we're wrong. Totally open to hearing that. But um, I believe that was his way of communicating with Sirius at some times. And then after he died, Dumbledore had a piece of it. And then I think Harry, the mirror broke for Harry and he was going to throw it away. And he saw a glint of something that looked like Dumbledore. So he held on to it. And then 
Aberforth, I guess, has the other side of the mirror. But yeah, you're right. They don't explain it. Harry just has a freaking broken mirror that he sees Aberforth in. Okay, so uh, there's no way for me just watching the movies to really understand where, where does this even come from? And that's so that's funny. That's what I talk about a lot of times is like the knowledge that I take for granted having read the books, you know, like I'm just like, oh yeah, the mirror. I know where that came from. But not everybody has that experience too. Some people just aren't readers. Don't understand it, but some people aren't readers. So, you know, they might not know, but we just take for granted that he has that. So then we go to Malfoy Manor. Snape is late to his Death Eater meeting. It's a very cold and unfriendly place. Like, I mean, we we saw the Dursleys' home. It wasn't pretty, uh, but it was more, I guess, like a home. We saw Hermione's home where she lived with her family. We even got a glimpse of the burrow. So we saw all of these different types of homes. And then we go to Malfoy Manor where there's this like you know, giant gate protecting everything. And you see Snape walking up stone steps and there's stone walls and everything's very like cold and unfeeling like the Malfoys. So imagine being Malfoy and growing up in that place too. And the Malfoys look so uncomfortable because they're hosting this meeting, but it's like their lives have been taken over uh, by Voldemort. Voldemort has confiscated their, their liberties because they're part of the cause. Everything the Malfoys hold so dear, all their possessions, you know, their status symbols. Voldemort doesn't care about any of that. And, of course, Voldemort says, uh, I need a new wand because my wand is linked with Harry's. So he uh, walks around and then picks uh, Lucius's wand and breaks off that 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 pommel because it's so ridiculous. and drops it into onto the table. This is another detail that I feel like they should have hit on a little bit more in this one. It's the wands and the importance of that. They're, I mean, like Harry's wand, you know, breaks later on. Malfoy's so unwilling to give up his wand. Why is that? And they don't really talk about, you know, what it means for like a, a wizard to be connected to a wand um, or the wand to choose wizard and how that affects how the wizard does magic we saw something on tiktok the other day where somebody talked about a theory that the reason neville's not so good in the beginning is because he had his father's wand that he inherited and then later on he gets his own wand that actually chose him and he's you know much better with the magic so um i, I definitely think they could have hit on that a little bit more here but what i like in the scene is Bellatrix offers to kill Harry like she wants to do it and then it's very much established that Voldemort has to do it I think everybody knows that at this point but just kind of like makes it clear for the movie everybody watching it Voldemort needs to be the one to do it probably partially out of stubbornness and also because of the prophecy I love uh two things Voldemort says uh when Snape arrives like I was beginning to wonder if you lost your way because you don't know where Snape's head's at. It looks like after killing Dumbledore from the film viewer and probably the book reader that Snape has gone back over to the Death Eaters. But you do know Snape's like master plan uh, is still with the with you know the side of good with Dumbledore and Harry. But how is he able to keep up this front right now? It's a, we'll learn more about that in part two, right? So it's interesting. In this scene, we've got the Muggle Studies professor hanging over the table while they're all just having a casual conversation. And 
a lot of the scene focuses both on Snape's face and Malfoy's face. And you can see both of them kind of break a little bit. Like, this, the, woman, the woman says to Snape, like, we were friends. I don't really believe that Snape was friends with anybody, honestly. Like, I can't imagine him having a real relationship with teachers beyond, like, staff meetings and, you know, how they treat the students and points and stuff like that. But, like, I don't see Snape grabbing a cup of coffee with anybody. Um, so that part, I think I like, I didn't quite get, but Snape did work with this person, see her every day throughout the school year for years and years and years. And he just has to watch as she's killed. Malfoy was probably in this woman's class, whether he wanted to be or not. And, you know, maybe had an interact, a few interactions with her over the past few years. So I don't, I mean, it's hard for them and, and they, they've both had very like pivotal moments in the past one. You know, Malfoy chose not to kill Dumbledore as he was lowering his wand. Snape had to kill Dumbledore and they both know, I mean, we know Snape is on the good side because we know where this ends, but they both know that what's going on is wrong and they kind of just have to sit there and let it happen. And that's very, that's a challenge and, and for both of them. Yeah, of course, they're killing off the muggle studies professor because she is very supportive of, you know, people, muggle-born wizards, you know, and, you know, wizards breeding with the muggles. It's like it's a normal thing, you know, like we shouldn't be like separating ourselves from them, whereas Voldemort, so it's got to be pure blood, you know, pure blood or nothing less because uh, he hated his muggle father so much. And now he like, like expands that and that every muggle must be as horrible as his father was and that's where it starts for him i also just want to say and he embraces his um being a descendant of salazar slytherin who very much did not believe in muggle-borns being allowed to come to hogwarts the other thing he says i just find so humorous uh he's talking to this long-haired guy pa uh, pious who's at the very end of the other end of the table and he, he asked Pius, what does he think about everything here? And then Pius is answering, but uh, Nagini is like right there. And so if Pius says something wrong, Nagini will eat him. And he's like staring at Nagini as he responds like, oh, there are many things, my lord, to consider, you know, like some bullshit. And then Voldemort like chuckles like, oh, spoken like a true politician. Uh, I don't know. I just love that scene, how everyone is like, walking on eggshells um and they're afraid of him you know and i love that no one wants to give up their wand because you said there's a special connection even though you you may be a super loyal supporter of voldemort giving up your wand is not something you really do i mean that you, you lose your wand that's something that's that's yours it feels like a it feels like a part of you but on the other end of that you're left powerless if you don't have a wand so that's like a, a challenging thing but Voldemort uses uh, Malfoy's wand to kill the Muggle Studies professor, and then Harry's ready to go. He's gonna go to a safe place, and a bunch of people show up at his door to pick him up. What I think is interesting, and I don't know, like I maybe just watching them all recently and close together, I picked up on this, but as soon as Harry opens the door, he's so excited to see everybody. And normally I feel like it's like his friends running up to hug him. But this time around, it was Harry who just like, you know, goes right in for the hug with Hermione, goes right in for the hug with Ron. Like he's 
thrilled to see them. And I feel like that's kind of like a change in his attitude since the previous two, you know, or the since the previous movies. So a lot of people show up, a lot of Weasleys, you know, uh, Ron, the twins, uh, Arthur, and Bill. We get to see Bill for the first time in the movies. And this is where they do a lot of that, like, kind of uh, cleanup that they didn't include any of these in previous ones. But there's a lot introduced all at once. You meet Bill. You understand that Bill was attacked by Fenrir. You see that Bill is now with Fleur. We, you know, haven't seen Fleur since the Goblet of Fire. And then, you know, Tonks and Lupin are now married. And they're, yeah, sort of announcing that they're having a baby. But they brush that off for later. And that it's, I guess it's just a way of like, oh yeah, we didn't address these things in previous ones. So we're just going to kind of throw it in quickly here. I'm not going to lie. It worked. I didn't need anything more than that, but, um, I don't know how you felt about having not read the books. Did you feel like that was too rushed or not enough? I don't know why, like I haven't read it, but I can almost like I was embodying the book viewer. Cause now I know all these facts like, oh, they just kind of quickly brush through it. And as a movie goer, it's probably fine. For the purposes of a film, it's fine. But I, I do respect like the book reader, like, oh my God, there's so much missing content, you know, but they're already making two films out of one book. So, you know, how much can you really delve into before it becomes like boring? I have to say it's a different time though, if you think about it, it's like the kind of TV shows that we have nowadays that we're like lucky to have that completely absorb us. There weren't shows like that when, you know, this movie was coming out. So, like, it, it kind of did its best. But at this point, there is opportunity to, you know, turn it into something really fleshed out and um, more in-depth. And I, I I totally think that could go so well. So there's a few other members of the Order here. You see Kingsley again. Mad-Eye Moody's there. Interesting about Mad-Eye Moody, played by Brendan Gleeson, his third film. His son, his real son, Dom Hall Gleeson, who plays Bill Weasley, they share a scene together here. Uh, I just love that uh, you gotta have, like, family members. I mean, they're not father and son in the movies, but I just love that they got to share the screen together. And there's one other new person, uh, Monungus Fletcher. It's funny that you say his name, and I, I forget, like, his name, because... Whenever we see him in anything else, we just say, oh, Bill Weasley's in that movie. Bill Weasley's in the new Star Wars movie. Yeah. Uh, was it the distinct red hair? I, I wouldn't say most Weasleys, but I, I I can tell during like watching these films again, a lot of the Weasleys dye their hair. I think the twins and, of course, the parents. Maybe that's it. I think um, Oliver and James Phelps? Oh. Damn, I wish I could remember their names, but that um, sounds right, though. Yeah, the the actors who play the twins, um, I think they have they're like brunettes in real life, but they're perfectly cast here. So, their plot to get out without getting killed by Death Eaters is uh, confuse them with seven Harrys to pick from. So they have Polyjuice Potion, of course. Mad Eye has it because Mad Eye wasn't using it in part four, but Bard Eye was using it to pretend to be him. I was just gonna say, what a like brilliant, hilarious scene where they all start to like change and like the way the camera moves across the Harrys and 
how like fucking trippy that must be for Harry, who like has to see all these other versions of himself. So now we have seven Harrys. Uh, so it's the twins, Fred and George, Ron and Hermione, Floor, and this guy we just met, Monungus Fletcher, who's this kind of weaselly like thief type guy. That's another like quick kind of. Oops, we didn't include him in anything else. I believe he was also part of the fifth one. Okay, when I was reading the fifth, I do remember seeing his name pop up. Everyone gets a partner up with someone else who will be flying them to the burrow. That's their point B, their safety. Uh, and Harry gets a ride with Hagrid again. And this is what Hagrid brings up. is like, I brought you here 16 years ago when you were just a little baby. I just like, oh. like It just felt so meaningful that they get to share this moment again together. I feel like there's like a lot of like kind of like symmetry in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen it in the other films too. Uh, I think three and five felt very similar to me because you have Sirius heavily involved with that. And then two and six, you had the diary coming back and there's a couple other things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I like. I think that the, the kind of how it started and then how Harry goes off on this like completely new journey too. And I mean, Hagrid was even the one to kind of introduce him to the wizarding world too. So it was just so fitting that he gets to be the one to do it. I have to say, Hagrid's a good driver. So, uh, and Hedwig will also be nearby. Harry's a pet owl. I think he set her off to kind of go ahead of him, but I think she stayed to protect him. Oh, Hedwig was supposed to be like a scout of sorts. Um, oh, you mean like, oh, we'll meet you there at the... Yeah, yeah like There's no Hedwig, need for Hedwig can, to be involved with this. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's why, like, I mean, Hedwig kind of gave him away um, and unintentionally. She saved him, like she sacrificed herself for him, but that because she was there protecting him, that's how everybody, or that's how the Death Eaters knew that that was the real Harry. So everyone partners up on different modes of transport. You have a couple different flying motorcycles. Ha- Hagrid has one and Mad-Eye has one, right? Then you have people on brooms and then a couple Thestrals as well. They immediately get attacked by Death Eaters in the sky and then they're all broken off and Hedwig comes in, like stops a Death Eater from attacking Harry. Harry takes out his one because he wants to fight, but he keeps on getting thrown off because Hedwig's trying to fly around. Uh, Hedwig swoops in, stops the Death Eater, but then the Death Eater takes another stab at Hedwig and kills Hedwig. Rest in peace. It, it just happens so quick. And then Harry Dunn never brings it up again. That's the, yeah. the movies, though. Yeah. This is the first death of the Deathly Hollows. I remember reading this um, when I first got the book, and I was like, no, no. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's a shock. Now, when the... We'll get to this, but they say there's a traitor in the group later on. Is it Mundungus? Or is it that Snape had the information and was telling them? Oh, that's a good question. Because they already knew that Harry was going to leave at a certain time. So they were talking about that with... And, and we didn't get to this, but when we were in that scene with Voldemort, they were talking about whether it was going to be on Harry's birthday when the trace is lifted or beforehand. So it was Snape. Snape was the one who kind of orchestrated the whole thing without like trying to stay in the shadows he wanted to kind of preserve his position as trusted death eater with voldemort so what he did was place a confundus charm on mundungus fletcher so that they he would suggest like to have a plan where six others disguise themselves as harry with polyjuice potion and be decoys 
So the rest of the order didn't know this, but that was Snape's way of telling, you know, like kind of letting Voldemort know what was going on, but then also trying to protect Harry through that. And I think he was present there. And I think the reason that George lost his ear was because he tried to cast this um, Sectum Sepra curse on a Death Eater's arm and it kind of hit George too. Oh, interesting. So it was his own spell. So everyone is broken off. Hagrid gets knocked out during the ride. It the it does get a little uh, like silly and clunky when the, the car, his motorbike's driving through the traffic. Like I kind of got checked out for that. Uh, I noticed the music ver- sounds very much like ET as they're about to get into the burrow. <laughs> I just I just thought that was uh, interesting. But uh, Harry makes it in safe. He's the first one back. And um, is he in Hadrig? Hat is he in? I want to say Hedwig and Hagrid at the same time. He and Hagrid land in the burrow. They like go through like a bog or something, and they're covered with water, and they just kind of stare at each other. There's all, it comes off as kind of humorous. I know they just went through something horrible, but they kind of have like that stare, like, "Yep, we're covered in you know mug like bog water." That's also how Harry got to the burrow last time too, is he just fell in the water. Yeah, so this is like a a tough scene because Mrs. Weasley and Ginny are waiting for everybody and there was a schedule of who should be back when and nobody's back and it's like, it's scary and slowly people start to kind of come back and you learn that Moody didn't make it because Mundungus Fletcher is a coward and George um, has lost an ear like we talked about and um two things i just want to bring up here is well one with the george and his ear scene like you know as everybody's kind of standing around him including fred and they're all worried about him that's like another moment of symmetry for what's going to happen later at the end of the next movie that we'll watch so so that foreshadows fred's death you know george loses an ear but fred loses his life and the other thing is um so when lupin um or when tonks and ron come out of the um the thing like tonks says you know ron saved the day she's alive because of ron and um hermione goes to hug him and it's such a weird transition because he's still hairy when she goes to hug him and then he turns into ron and i i do feel tired of this like you know not quite a love triangle but love triangle thing at this point we've already very much established that harry and hermione are friends and you know ron might be afraid of otherwise afraid he's not good enough but i just don't love that like i don't know that that kind of poking more at that like that dance scene that's later on too we'll talk about that it's just it's it's weird you know, they do all this, but they don't even spend time on Harry's actual interest is Ginny. Like, she's in, like, one scene with Harry, and then that's it. You know, like, that. I mean, maybe the books, they don't spend that much time together, but... They actually date. Did you know that? They're actually, in the sixth one, they're dating, and he has to break up with her because of what he's about to do. So they are a legitimate couple before any of this. I did not know that. That would, that would be interesting to, like, they have to, like, end things because it just, there's no time. There's no space for it in this. A lot of people do not like movie Jenny. I think Bonnie Wright is great, um, but I just don't think she was given enough as Jenny. 
Yeah, I don't think it's anything on the actress's fault. Yeah, it's just just a character that's been cut, essentially. One thing I forgot to bring up before I get there, Harry does have another Priori and Cantata moment with uh, Voldemort, who shows up. He, like, I guess he can pick out who the real Harry is because Harry has a massive, like, headache, you know? Just go near, if Harry starts going like, ah, then, oh, that's the real one. But I notice is, like, Harry's trying to keep uh, Hagrid's motorbike, like, centered. So he can't drive that and duel with Voldemort. It's almost like his wand, like, magnetically goes to stop Voldemort. Like, it, it, it focused on that. Like, his wand, it, his hand was moving not in a human way. It was like the wand was moving Harry's hand, if that makes sense. The wand chooses the wizard, so you gotta imagine that they're, you know, pretty intuitive and smart. And then Lucius Malfoy's wand fucking blows up because it's, it can't handle it. So, um, this is kind of like, again, getting at the importance of, of wands, you know, Voldemort probably yielding Lucius's wand doesn't, um, have the same success that he would with his own wand, but then also this, the fact that that didn't work starts him out on this quest to find a particular wand. Actually, it doesn't start him out on this request because they've already had Ollivander since then. So they kind of were, they knew that they needed this wand, but I feel like this confirmed it for him that Lucius Malfoy's wand didn't work. So this is service that built up the the main, the, the title of the story, Deathly Hollows. This is the one of the Deathly Hollows. So we're building one of those up. So, uh, okay, so they all make it in, you know, uh, so Hedwig's dead. Mad Eye's dead, and George lost his ear. But of course, George, some yeah, some comedy out of it. Says, "I'm feeling very saintly." What do you mean? I'm holy, you know, because he's got a hole in his ear. Yeah, he he definitely brings some like lightheartedness to this, and I think that's what's needed, and that's what's nice about Fred and George's characters throughout the movies is they really bring that like that levity when you need it. Um, we see, you know, Harry and Ron, they're asleep upstairs in Ron's room. And I think you see like Harry's journal, like he's gathering his stuff and he has notes about the Horcruxes. And I just feel like Harry kind of has an obsessive personality, which I totally get because I do as well. Like you kind of fixate on something like, I think he does that because last year it was Malfoy and now this time it's the Horcruxes. And obviously it's for good reasons that he has these obsessions, but he gets very fixated on these things. But he, you know, wakes up from a dream and decides that he does not want to stick around anymore. He needs to go. There's no more waiting. This is stupid. And I love, love, love that it's Ron that calls him out on this bullshit and sets him straight because like harry's being fucking selfish and that's he says like it's bigger than you right now like it's not about you it's so much bigger than that it's affected the entire world right now and it would be really selfish of harry to leave right now while he still has the trace on him he he even says harry like we'd only be doing him a favor and he just talks some sense into uh into Harry when he freaking needs it. And I, I love that because, I mean, later on in the film, you see Ron kind of not be able to have that sense, sensibleness to him, that sensibility to him. Wow, sensibleness, sensibility to him. Um, 
And here in this moment, he has it. He says, you know, they wouldn't last without Hermione. You still have the trace. He's talking, he, Harry knows better. And that's why he has his friends is because they, they keep him alive. They keep him sane. They keep him safe. And they talk reason when Harry is unreasonable. I'm glad Ron has like one of those moments because he doesn't get that many. Like there's a lot of moments of him, you know, fretting or, you know, being scared, but he does like come up when he's needed. Like he brought Harry back. And if Harry had gone in, maybe that's just what Voldemort wants. Harry for, for Harry to be alone and he's weak that way. It's interesting that you say that, that Ron doesn't get those many moments. I feel like Ron does have quiet moments and he's, very good like kind of like sturdy support but he also has his own issues that he's kind of dealing with throughout that do come up you know because he's I, he he also like I think as Weasley brings a little bit of the lightheartedness to things as well um which is needed because it can't all be dark and serious because you see when it's just Harry and Hermione how dark it gets um but I, I, I recently heard somebody talk about how Ron's kind of like a worthless character. Hermione deserved better than Ron. And I have never heard that argument before. And I very strongly disagree with that because I think that Ron kind of has this quiet, like, hero-ness to him and this time he really gets to shine you know like it he has his struggles but he overcomes those struggles too and he's understanding who he is outside of being in the shadow of the chosen one because again it's not just about harry anymore okay harry has to be the one to do it but it's affecting the whole world and you know like it's just I really respect Ron as a character and I wish more people did because I, I didn't realize it was such a thing. And Ron's right. I mean, maybe in the beginning, first few stories, Voldemort was more connected to just Harry because it was more personal. He killed my parents. He tried to kill me, you know, and then he came, you know, he came back a couple times. It was me who had to stop him. But now it's a, it's a global event. It's a war that's going on. It's no longer just a one person's actions. Uh, so I do love Ron having this moment here with him. So before that, like Harry had like this dream, right? Of seeing Ollivander being questioned by Voldemort. Is it Ron and Harry talk about the Horcruxes, right? So two have been dealt with so far. Tom Riddle's diary from Chamber of Secrets. And Dumbledore took care of this uh, the family ring, right? I mean, I don't want to jump too far off course, but that ring also like cursed him. Did he have to like cursed in order to destroy i don't understand what i think that was there. part of destroying the horcrux um it's kind of like he knew what he was gonna get into there but it just i mean it, i don't think they all do the same thing um like you see when they're wearing the locket how that affects them um and i think that that was the effect of the ring you know it's not like dumbledore is going to just leave that in his drawer for anybody to find he had to take it with him just like they had to take the locket with him. They didn't just put it in their bag. They held on to the locket. Because you see what happens when the Snatchers get them. They take everything out of the bag, even Gryffindor's sword. Yeah, so they can't just hold it in their pocket. They have to literally keep it on their person, even if it messes with them. Okay, yeah, the, the dream. So we've talked about the Horcruxes so far, and there's definitely, was it four or five to go? So there's seven total that we know of. We okay. don't know about the bonus eighth one. Um, 
and they don't know what they are right now um they know they need to find another locket and um then there's you know they'll discover along the way that it's going to be tied to the rest of the hogwarts founders and nagini but uh we'll get there yeah so you mentioned the um the kind of like comical uh you mentioned that like how George is making light of what you know like his situation and he's like brushing his teeth and he comes down when Harry and Ginny are having their moment and just sticks it in his ear and watches until they get uncomfortable and goes away so yeah I appreciate that so in that same scene Harry sees the Daily Prophet and sees there's a book out on Dumbledore's past that was quick right after his death there's a book about his whole past and it's written by Rita Skeeter so after that, we're preparing for the wedding, right? Which is Bill and Floor's wedding. Um, and they even talk about, like, it's kind of crazy to have it, but maybe that's the point. You need to have your levity even in... Even when it feels inappropriate, it's still important to have those light moments, you know, to celebrate things. So before the wedding starts, uh, the new minister, Rufus, shows up, uh, and he reads uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione... Uh, Dumbledore's will. He has things for all three of them. The entire time, Hermione is just watching him with utter like mistrust and confusion to see like what is he up to here, because he's he clearly has an ulterior motive. So he gives Hermione tales of Beetle the Bard, which is a book that was it Ron when he was a little kid. Like he got bedtime stories too. Come on, Babbity Rabbity. <laughs> and the words used are. Dumbledore hopes Hermione finds it both entertaining and instructive because it will help them along the way. Either there's symbols and there's stories to help them figure out what are these deathly hollows. Ron Bilius Weasley, I love how it's like that his middle name is emphasized, yeah, gets the Deluminator, which we saw at the very beginning of the series. Um, and it's kind of helps Ron find his way, especially when things are dark. It's not just something that provides literal light but it provides light to the soul you know uh and he says when things are most dark they will show him the light uh and harry gets two things well he can't give him one of them he gets the snitch that he caught during his first quidditch match which uh hermione would theorize later on has flesh memory i think all snitches have flesh memory that's why when Scrimmador handed it to him he handed it to him with a handkerchief and then like made harry pick it up and he was expecting it to open up or reveal some kind of secret but he didn't know that harry caught it with his mouth we will get to that um and then of course the sort of godric gryffindor but maybe was that dumbledore's to give and even if it was his to give we can't give it to him because it's missing well, what do you mean it's missing um and he mentions for Harry, it's like perseverance and skill. That's what the snitch resembles. But he also tells Harry that he can't fight Voldemort on his own. And I think that that was, you know, misguided on his part. Like, I mean, especially because he gets taken down, you know, very shortly after that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that he he's the kind of person that can't get out of his own way thinks he knows what's right and there's you know one path and one way to do things and he doesn't trust that you know harry can actually do what he's supposed to do this poor guy like I, he was well-intentioned he wasn't like weak like fudge so it's like oh this is kind of minister you would want to have but i think he's just coming into the game way too late and there's 
he doesn't have enough time to build up a solid defense and he's taken out very quickly. Uh, so we have Floor and Bill's wedding. I'd like to point out Crum, Victor Crum, was supposed to be in this scene. They even shot scenes with him in it. He even dances with Hermione at the wedding. So you could probably find stills of it, but they cut that part out, obviously. I don't even know if there's a deleted scene. He's just not in this film, obviously. So while they're there, I love during the dancing, you can see Luna and her dad dancing, and they just have like their own kooky way of doing it. And they're both wearing like, like, like really like, say like honey yellow colors. Like it's very like obnoxious, but it's like, that's their style. Uh, and they, he even says, he's as just as weird as Luna is. He's like, oh, not gnome saliva is very good. You know, just some like random non sequitur. You see where she gets it from. I like that. Also in the scene, you know, Harry's starting to learn more. I guess the books cover it way better. But Dumbledore had this mysterious past where his father killed muggles. And, you know, they also uh, were on Godric's Hall where Harry grew up. You know, uh, not grew up, but he spent his first years. I like that that woman asks him, like, are you sure you knew him at all? Because that really hits a nerve for Harry. Because I think he felt like he was close to Dumbledore. But then after Dumbledore's death, like... There's so much that he realized he didn't actually know. And there's so much of that that plays into the bigger story, too. And then, of course, right after that, party's over. Uh, Kingsley sends a message, like just like a couple second warning. Minister's dead. They are coming. And, of course, Death Eaters immediately pop up, cause like a fire of in the tent. Everyone's running around. Death Eater shows up, like pops off random guests. You see the green uh, light you know, come out. It's like, oh, that guy's dead. You know, it's some random person, but it's like, it's very real. Um, and then everyone like, uh, gets out of there. Uh, so the trio apparate, Hermione takes him to London. Uh, and they go to this cafe shop. What's interesting here is the Death Eaters, they like to come up with their own little disguises themselves. They were wearing like, uh, like construction worker uniforms and they had little like, uh, uh, tool sets with them before pretending you know like they were pretending to be someone else before just jumping in and attacking i feel like they were trying to outsmart the trio because if they had just showed up in black cloaks they would have been noticed so that was their way of trying to get ahead of the situation i guess that's the only time they really outsmart you know or try to like come up with a disguises the other times it's they just show up on the hogwarts express like yeah we're death eaters no harry's not on here you know i do like that um they wipe their memories instead of killing them i think that that is i mean ron does question like should we because that's what you would do if you were in our situation and they have to decide you know no we're we're not like them so they just wipe their memories and there's that cute moment between ron and hermione where she's got like blood on her chin and he like wipes it off for her that's adorable but yeah and then from there they need somewhere safe that they can go a place to hide perhaps so this takes us to act two um which starts with the them at Grim, 12 Grimmauld Place and the Ministry stealth mission they go on all the way to the destruction of the third Horcrux. So they, they go to 12 Grimmauld Place, Sirius's old place, because it was a secret. So what's interesting, and they don't talk about this, I think it occurred in the last one, is that after Sirius died, Sirius was the, you know, the last black left, so he, 12 Grimmauld Place was his, consequently creature. 
And when he died, he left all of that to Harry. So 12 Grimwald Place belongs to Harry. And as the owner of 12 Grimwald Place, Creature is need answers to him. And you don't see Creature in the sixth one or Dobby, but Creature does play a role. I think Harry sends Creature and Dobby to follow Malfoy around in order to kind of gain some insight on what Malfoy's up to, which is where the like really like big obsession comes into play there. Uh, but so so this is his place and Creature has to answer to him, which is they don't talk about that, but Creature just kind of does what Harry asks and that's that. But you see that it's a lot darker and just obviously emptier without people there, but just the feeling, it just like kind of feels empty and lonely without the entire Order of the Phoenix there. And it's, it's sad. It's also sad for Harry to be back at this place where that was the last time he saw Sirius. Well, not the last time he saw Sirius, but that's the last time he saw Sirius, like happy and alive and kind of thriving. So what I love here is they, you know, they sleep there and Harry wakes up either in the middle of the night or in the morning. You can see Ron and Hermione's hands like outstretched while they're sleeping, like almost reaching for each other's hand. I just thought that was so sweet. I remember the first time I saw that and that's always stuck with me. So this is where you start to see that Harry, like they, he's not on the Hogwarts Express. They want to find him so that they can just kind of take him out, capture him, whatever. And they start to make him the number one desirable person. He's uh, the that guy from the, uh, what's his name? The new minister. Rufus Screaming. Oh, oh, no. Uh, Pius. Yes. Yeah. So Pius is now the new minister of magic. You see Umbridge standing next to him. And they're they're ready to to get harry potter and that's scary because i'm pretty sure the rest of the wizarding world is kind of like oh shit the ministry's not safe anymore i mean maybe they knew but so there are two things is uh nothing to fear if they have nothing to hide you know when they start interrogating doing their inquisitions of every wizard to per- to, sure- to make sure that they're pure blood or at least half blood you know any muggle born wizards probably are they gonna go ask man or they're just gonna get killed i don't know what happens to them and I, this guy has such a small role as a death eater i don't think we ever see him again after this movie this yaxley guy i don't know if it's like his accent his demeanor is like he's very imposing and he makes this great like one-off villain um when they're in the ministry and they also have i noticed on they have a new uh structure in the middle of the like a new uh statue uh it's all the muggles being crushed but the term is magic is might. It sounds like a like not too horrible of an expression, but what it refers to is like the wizard crushing the the muggles, the inferior muggles. Like that's the that's their end game. You could interpret any quote the way that you want to interpret it, and that's a, a good point. So the next day, after being at Twelve Grimmauld Place, they go exploring around the Black House and. Harry, of course, gets to see Sirius's room and kind of that, like, you know, it, it's a hard moment for him, I'm sure. And then Ron finds a room for Sirius's brother, Regulus Arctus, Arctus Black. I don't know. I don't remember his middle name, but, you know, Shorten is R-A-B. It's like, oh, that's the R-A-B from the note in the fake locket from last time. So Regulus was a Death Eater who had turned on Voldemort because of the Horcruxes? Yeah. 
Um, I think he realized what Voldemort was actually up to and died, you know, trying to do the right thing here. Yeah, so then they realize that, like, they need some answers. They find out creatures there, so Harry demands some answers. They find out that it, Mungdungus was the one who took it. Um, definitely in the fifth one, in the book at least, he was creeping around Grimwald Place looking to see if he could sell some stuff. And so they send Creature off to go find Mungdungus. And when Creature returns, he not only has Mungdungus, but he also brought Tommy with him. I love that those two are working together and they're, they're such a like weird pair. Um, they're like tackling Mundungus like uh, to bring him in. They probably like grabbed him and then apparated him to the House of Black, right? Yeah. the uh, Like I said, in the sixth one, Dobby and Creature kind of work together to follow Malfoy on Harry's orders. Harry can order Creature around, but Dobby like elects to do that and help out Harry. And then Creature and Dobby do not get along either. I can see like they're fighting as Dobby's like trying to speak and Creature's trying to speak as well, but Dobby's like, no, not not right now. And I love when they're like, since Mundungus stole from the Black House, Creature really doesn't like him, right? And he's like, rrr, rrr. but they're like trying to talk about it. Uh, a Creature's like trying to like attack Mundungus at the same time. And it, you just throughout their conversation, you can hear like Creature like just grunting and like getting all like, pissed off i just love that you know he's like this grumpy old dog versus dobby's like the sweet you know mischievous dog mungdungus disrespected the black family and creature was not going to stand for that it's interesting just a quick moment on the house elves because the black family and the malfoys were very similar they were even related by marriage but creature respected in a way his owners or his masters like he kind of what they said took that you know he calls Hermione uh you know I think a mudblood uh and just you know complains about everybody believes in that purity and Dobby on the other hand like he followed and did what he was supposed to do he he followed the orders um but he didn't ultimately agree like I think that if the situation had been reversed and Creature was the Malfoys house elf you know perhaps he would have not gone to warren harry you know what i mean like it just it's interesting these two house elves in the family of dark wizards and even winky like we don't get to see her in the movies for sure but she really struggled with not having her masters around and having this freedom too it's such an interesting like i guess dynamic that they don't dive into enough here maybe that's what i'm trying to say it's it's really just like decoration kind of having the the house elves there because they have to have dobby for two and creature comes in at five but they don't really bring them in in other places and i really wanted to have more time with dobby because i really feel like when dobby dies at the end of this story like i really would have appreciated more if they included dobby more because i felt they just brought him back so oh dobby and then kill him like it just felt too quick for me and so I, I don't think I got that emotion there. We could talk about that when we get there, but I really wish they had more Dobby in it. It would have made more sense. Same with Hedwig. Hedwig comes in and out, but it's not like you can talk to Hedwig. I think Dobby had a presence in, in at least most of the other books following, um, like at, I know four for sure. I cannot remember if he had a role in five and definitely six. He had a bigger role in that was cut. And I see what you mean. 
so like they were trying to truncate the stories to make them you know more you know streamlined for people to watch but when they have to bring the character back for like an important pivotal scene or their death it doesn't mean as much because they weren't there throughout the story you know or it's like dobby hasn't in the films he hasn't been back since two so it's been five six years since we've seen him last that's a good point uh and aside from that in questioning among Douglas, they learned that the locket was confiscated by somebody at the ministry dolores umbridge now did she know it was a horcrux oh no or she just liked the look of I it i think she yeah she just admired it and wanted it for herself I don't think anybody knows about Horcruxes except for Harry at this point. Dumbledore was the only one who knew he brought Harry in on it because he knew, you know, he was going to die and he had to pass on the torch to let Harry take it from there. And nobody else quite knows what's going on there. Maybe there's speculation, but nobody knows for sure about Horcruxes. I wonder, okay, so no one knows. I wonder if Voldemort saw umbridge and she was wearing that would he freak the fuck out would he like kill her on the spot and take it or would he i don't know i'm i'm sure he would kill her on the spot but uh, i don't think voldemort would put himself in a position to be in such a public place i i mean i I don't think he has that much to fear i think he's incredibly bold at this point but i can't see him being at the ministry of magic and i think that's that's why they have a representative of the death eaters there and not voldemort himself is perhaps it's a fear thing or a power where he wants to like stay in the shadow because you see in the books again not in the movie but anytime anybody says his name it calls death eaters to him and that's why uh everybody starts going back to referring to him as you know who which again gives him more power they don't even want to say his name and yeah, I just can't see him being in any kind of public situation where he would see Umbridge or something like that. It's interesting. He stays out of like he didn't become the Minister of Magic. He let someone else, a figurehead, take his place. Um, and you know, it just occurred to me like having this fear of his name. It's kind of like he becomes this urban legend. You know, this kind of creepy story you'll tell. Like if you say his name, he'll come and get you. You know, he's the boogeyman essentially. Um, so this gets us, because they need to get the locket from Umbridge, to the Ministry heist, uh, sequence, and watching this back again, it's like, this feels like something out of Mission Impossible, because they all have to take on new personas, uh, with some humor, but they have to get out of, get in, get out, like, without getting harmed, you know? And they don't know how long it's gonna last. I just love, love, love the scene, because it's like, they're freaking terrified like uh i think it's harry who says it's completely mental and ron says the world's mental right now and it's it's so great they're they're terrified to find up they actually don't really want to i feel like it, it they get down there and like okay we're here for this long if we don't find umbridge we just get out and we'll come back another day like they make it like it's that easy and keep in mind like leading up to that that had to have taken a month for them to brew that polyjuice potion because that's how long it takes and very freaking risky to do what they did and then ron learns like the person that he took on his wife is being questioned which is a nice way to kind of introduce that like 
the whole like half-bloods muggle-borns like what's going on with them there and you get to actually see what's going on because for so much of the story harry ron and hermione are removed from everything and ron like really steps into this character because when he finds out that his wife is downstairs being questioned ron's like oh my god my wife is all alone downstairs and harry's like ron you don't have a wife he's like oh oh yeah there's a lot of opportunities for humor here um first when they're entering uh like the men's toilet sections like this is how we enter and then like ron creeps over it's like we flush ourselves in and then there's people like knocking on the door and to hurry up uh, and it just feels like oh you know they put their feet in and they flush down and then it turns into this flu powder entrance to the to the ministry uh was it uh hermione is forced to be the a secretary essentially to umbridge right uh and she looks so uncomfortable there because she can't do anything. She, well, she feels like she can't act. She just has to sit in. They all do too. Harry, Harry as this guy, just walks so funny. Like his, his steps aren't normal. And it just makes him so suspicious too. This is just such like a brilliant and, and comical scene. And then it shifts to something very serious. But the way that this is done, so okay so he goes to umbridge's office doesn't find anything disrupts things with another like trinket from fred and george's um which is a nice moment that they can like provide that levity when you need it even though they aren't actually in the scene and then they go downstairs to ron's catermole's wife i guess um and uh that questioning and harry sees the locket he sees umbridge and he just gets so fucking pissed and he's like sorry i must not tell lies and then it's just he, the dementors get released because her patronus which is a kitten avi is gone <laughs> is gone hermione grabs the locket and they run but he starts to change at that point too i love that the uh, harry gets to say like a call back i must not tell lies and then he stupefies her you know knocks her out they get the locket they knock out yaxley too but then he comes after them and uh they just escape on the elevators the dementors are coming harry uses a patronus i think to get rid of them that there's so much tension in this scene like i say this is a relatively slow movie like it's it moves the way that it needs to move, but there's times when it's kind of slow. I think what helps it feel like it moves is these moments of tension where it's needed. And like as they're running away from the rest of the people in the ministry, there's so much tension there. You wonder if they're going to get caught. They're not that far behind. And there's a scene where Harry sends the papers flying and all of those like Harry undesirable number one go right up against the window. And that's just it was such a, like a brilliant comical moment and then so the trio is trying to get out they're going to apparate once they get to one of those entrances they'll apparate out but yaxley's following him and he's got this like the strut i don't know if it's confidence but he's like almost like the murder in those slasher flicks like he's coming like he's got that like determined uh, uh pacing to get them this is not the first apparition that ends horribly for someone, but uh, Ron gets splinched. So it goes from something a little more humorous and lighthearted to something a lot more serious and dark. And they break out the Dittany to, to heal Ron, which if you play uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, that's the Dittany is, uh, is one of our favorite uh, cards to, to have around. You can give it any other player two health 
including yourself if you need it. Then they, they're out in the woods now. They are camping. They're not staying in a house. They're not, you know, it, it's getting real. But they also don't know, you know, where to go or what to do because they can't destroy the locket. They've tried and it's not working. So you see Harry's, you know, wearing it for a while and they realize how it affects emotions. So Hermione says, like, let's let's well, let's all share the burden. I'll take a turn now. And I thought it was interesting and I thought this was an interesting comparison to Lord of the Rings because the ring definitely affects Frodo like that, but he's not sharing the load with anybody he's letting he's taking the full hit himself and while harry would be that stubborn he does have ron and hermione who are going to you know take a piece of that burden you know it's it's interesting so when someone's wearing the locket and it's affecting them you can hear like this very slow like very light screeching noise like it's kind of like something in their head that's giving them like that that agita that like need to yell at people you see a little bit with harriet and you see a lot with ron but hermione doesn't seem too affected by it maybe because she's good at you know delegating it's like okay i've worn it enough you can wear it but the other but ron's not good at holding on to it i feel like for her it manifests in like this just like heavy depression like when you do see her wearing it she's kind of like small and weak and like she just everything is weighing on her but for ron it's like his worst fears are coming to life and maybe it affects ron differently than it affects the other two and for you know whatever reason maybe ron's more susceptible to it i mean that's why dumbledore gave him the deluminator is because he needed help finding his way so maybe he was more open to kind of hearing these things and starting to actually believe them so this starts this long segment of the trio on the run as fugitives they're most wanted uh i love as they're like getting getting through moving from location to clip moving from location to location you can hear overhead because they keep that radio on to hear for missing persons you just keep hearing it overhead as they're traveling and traveling and you also hear the screeching of the locket as it's like slowly like turning up turning ron against harry and hermione it's a way for i mean us as the viewers to kind of get to know what's going on in the real world as well it's something that ron holds on to to make sure his family is safe and you know like poor ron he's just he's struggling with this feeling like he isn't good enough for hermione that he left his family behind and they're all gonna die you know like he's he's really afraid and really struggling i feel like his him not talking to harry in the fourth one and then him not talking to hermione in the sixth one was almost like a little bit of a setup for what's about to happen like where he steps back from both of them where sometimes his fear or emotions get the best of him and that causes a rift between them but he you know he'll always come back and he even says it later he regretted it almost immediately I would like to say it's a little bit of a lighter thing, but it looks like Hermione was the one to give the uh, OG quarantine haircut uh, in this because you see her cutting Harry's hair. And I thought that was funny because that's like, the um, I've cut your hair in quarantine as well. And 
Uh, I know a lot of people have done that. So I mean, at least the easy part for me is it could just be buzzed off versus like, you know, being careful the hair and cutting it so it has a certain style to it. Um, I love that she's cutting it because she realizes something. She's like, oh my God, Harry thinks it's his hair. And he's like, uh, it's like, and then she's uh, like wondering if she should talk to him. I was like, yeah, I would like to talk about it because he thinks he has a hair missing in the back of his head. Um, and this is where she realizes like, only certain objects can destroy Horcruxes because they really tried to destroy that that locket. They try like 20 different spells on it. Nothing happens. And that's why they have to wear it. Until they figure out how to destroy it. They also have no fucking clue where the rest of the Horcruxes are. So it kind of feels like they're stagnant right now. And I think that contributes to what Ron's feeling. So he fucking blows up. I think so. I'm assuming, you know, their heist to get the locket happens like at this near the start of the school year. And now it's probably closer to Christmas now. So they've been doing this for several months and there's no movement from them. They're just moving. They don't even know how to destroy the locket. They're stuck. Think about it from when they got to Grimald place, found out where the locket went. They had to brew polyjuice potion. So that took a month. That took some time. They had to plan and stake out the ministry. That's not something that we learn in the movies, but they purposefully picked those people in order to, you know, have the right kind of access and, you know, know how they're going to to get them. So that took a while itself. And now, you know, Ron's healing after being splinched and they're just kind of moving around. They don't know where to go or what's safe anymore. And yeah, Ron does blow up and he's really struggling with it. And he leaves his he lets his anger get the better of him i don't think he has the necklace off for that long and he storms away and then he expects hermione to come with him and she doesn't in that like seals the deal for ron and he storms off and you see hermione tying a scarf to the tree almost like a kind of nod like this is where we were this is you know like to in case ron wanted to follow which is just heartbreaking for her too and the other thing is they have to be so careful because even they, you see them like almost every day, they put up their protection spells so they can't be seen, right? But Hermione one night almost gets caught by the Snatchers, they're called. And I only know his name because it showed up in the subtitle, Scabior is their leader. And also I see Fenrir Greyback is among the bunch. That was a high tension scene too, that like really like where she's almost getting caught. Um, they smelled her perfume, right? That's... I didn't understand why she had on perfume because I was going to make the joke that maybe they hadn't showered in a while. And I was like, oh, well, maybe they haven't showered. That's why she's wearing perfume. But yeah, I, it's just Harry and Hermione now and that weighs on them too because again, they don't know where they're going. They're trying to do their research and figure things out. It's winter, it's cold. And then there's this really weird scene. I, I don't, quite understand it i think i think it might have made more sense if ron hadn't just stormed away because he was afraid of her harry and hermione being together but harry starts dancing with hermione and again we've already established that they are just friends that their relationship is purely platonic but again if this hadn't have happened after right after Ron stormed away, I thought it might've been a little bit better because like we talked about earlier, it's like you need to be able to find those moments of levity in these dark and depressing times. And that was this for them. 
it was just weird timing, at least in my opinion. It plays into Ron's fears, even though he's not there. It's like, look at this, you know, uh, they're having fun. I think it, that scene was made, be- which was added. I don't, from what I was reading, that was not in the books. I think they added it because they needed something to break the tension for a little bit. Um, oh, they felt they needed to do that. Uh, I, I looked up the song. It's from Nick Cave and the Dad Seed. And the other song I'll bring up that I really like from this band is Red Right Hand, which uh, is in the Scream movies. What a great, like, I love to listen to that song every Halloween. It's so dark and uh, very moody, you know, like it's atmospheric in a certain way. So, yeah, it it, it was a weird scene to have. It almost like, are, are they going to kiss now at the end? No. I mean, it's like a, when Harry met Sally kind of thing, like, men and women can't be friends because the sexual tension but it just yeah i understand what you're saying uh it's kind of weird to have especially when ron's already like afraid of stuff like that happening what what brings them how do they get to godrick's hollow from here so harry says to hermione i want to go back to godrick's hollow Hermione's afraid that it's not a good idea and Harry's like well we have to do something you know she thinks something's waiting but I mean what else would they do I think she even says to him at some point like why don't we just stay here live in the woods forever like they're they're kind of they're getting by you know they're not having to deal with what the rest of the world is dealing with but uh yeah so they decide to go to Godric's Hollow and they discover that it's Christmas Eve. Hermione says they should have used Polyjuice Potion. And he says, this is where I was born. I'm not returning as somebody else. And they go to visit his parents' grave. Hermione sees the Deathly Hollow symbol again after seeing it in the book. This is the location of the Dumbledores and the Potters, right? They're both from this this quaint little town. I would love to go walk around it someday, but I know it's fictional. I mean, it's a real location, too. I don't know, wherever they filmed. Uh, and they see Bethilda Backshot in the distance looking really weird, you know? Um, and then she's just standing next to them after they look at the graves. And Harry's old house, which has been blown up from whatever happened when he was a baby. You see a picture of Grindelwald and Bethilda Backshot's house, and I don't think they say it, but she's his great aunt and i think that that's how grindelwald and dumbledore started to know each other because i think grindelwald was staying with Bathilda backshot who wrote history of magic right that's the book that- yes yes she did um so she was like a famous historian and a good friend of the dumbledores so okay so she's connected to grindelwald so like while this is going on, you see little, like, dream sequences or Harry, like, getting into what Voldemort's up to, right? So he's going after a more powerful one. So he uh, interrogates Ollivander, who he's already kidnapped. Then he goes find this wand maker named Grigorovich, uh, finds out that the wand was taken by someone uh, who is Grindelwald. So he kills the wand maker and goes find goes to find him, and I guess it's a little later on, but so there's there's one person who has it. He's had it this whole time, and you know who. So he knows to go after Dumbledore, but that's at the very end of this film. Had they known Nagini was a Horcrux, they could have saved themselves a little bit of time. 
I don't know how you kill Nagini. I mean, aside from Gryffindor's sword, because I think that's how Neville does it at the end. But could have could have checked one off. They might have known actually. They they might have assumed that Nagini was a Horcrux. But things move pretty fast, so they probably couldn't have killed her. Yeah, it's terrifying because it. Okay, I'm not sure what's going on, but Nagini's pretending to be Bethola Backshot. I didn't know Nagini had that ability. And then we find out in the side series that Nagini was a human once. So that's a very interesting, tragic thing that Nagini is now stuck as a snake and is also a horcrux and servant for Voldemort. I don't know what their relationship is. I think in the... I didn't... I don't love the Fantastic Beast thing, so I've only seen it, I think, once. But I believe that Nagini is cursed with something or it's in this type of ability she has or something like that where she can transform into a snake and then one day she just won't ever be able to transform back mm-hmm. i'd say perhaps the relationship with voldemort is once being a human and then now a snake being able to actually communicate with somebody might have been the appeal to hanging around with him okay that makes sense um yeah I, i'm not a fan of the fantastic beast films either the first one was okay the second one is just boring and way too much stuff they're trying to stuff in okay so Bethilo backshot is not really talking her eyes look like really dark and then when she gets harry alone she's like just pauses and then she starts like shaking her face starts to rot away and then drops down and then of course the snake just pops out this is a very terrifying scene because hermione's downstairs she's uh here's the flies you don't see the bodies, but they show like blood on the, on the ceiling, like oh, people here they're murdered, and Nagini's taking up shop here. Which makes sense because the, did they put Nagini there to wait for Harry to show up, so they could a- attack him? Like was Nagini a plant there waiting for Harry to return one day? I think so, and they were suspicious of that too, like that Her- Hermione was afraid that that was going to happen. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think they were just waiting for him. And I, I think they assume that Harry would have maybe gone to Bethilda Bagshot for information because of the book and what's going on there. What a terrifying scene this was. The transformation and then Nagini, like, jumping and attacking. And, like, all the signs building up that something's not right here. It's very clear that they can't kill Nagini. Like, they... they you know, attack her with fire. They, you know, use many spells on her, but she keeps on coming back. So the best way, thing to do is just to apparate the fuck out of there. What I wasn't sure about, though, was it looked like the Potter's house was destroyed. And then the house that they fall into, I the thing I had always assumed that that was like Harry's old room when he was a kid, but I guess it couldn't have been that. But I, when we do see that scene in previous movies, it's very blue. I don't know. I was confused about that they like kind of fell into a baby's room across the the way but yeah you're right they do get out of there they go to another nostalgic place for Hermione you can really tell she misses her family she brings up you know how they would have you know if she brought them back they wouldn't recognize it they wouldn't even recognize her so that's definitely weighing on her and Harry takes the locket from her at this point and sees a Patronus that I believe they don't talk about, but I believe Snape said that Patronus to for Harry to find the Gryffindor sword. So two things: one, Harry's wand got destroyed, mm-hmm. and 
it's really not something you can put back together. Uh, and he's like, it's fine. You know, like everything else is going to hell. It's like, he's not gonna, he's already lost his Hedwig. He's lost so many other people. Uh, he's on the run for several months. He doesn't know how to get rid of this Horcrux. And it's like, I'll take the locket. And now they have to trade off on the wand. It's not perfect for Harry because it's not his wand, but it's something for protection. And then he just sees that Patronus. So can you send like a Patronus like from really far away or Snape in the bushes somewhere? <laughs> just like, oh, come on, buddy. Also, is it tied at all to Ron's Deluminator? I don't know that that would be weird because that's, that's Snape's thing and the Deluminator was Dumbledore's. I don't know, just both Ron and Harry at the same time finding their way to the sword it, it just i just found it interesting i don't know if he i don't think he sent the patronus i think he was delivering it to harry i'm sure he was like keeping track of where harry was i don't know if it was connected to the deluminator at all but i think that was like doing its own thing setting ron on the right path and then because harry was outside of the protective enchantments ron could actually see him now that was why he wasn't able to find them before is because he wasn't around the protective enchantments so yeah and harry makes a bold move <laughs> i think it's uh seasonally appropriate because i think there's this thing it's called the polar bear plunge where on new year's maybe it's like new year's eve at midnight or new year's day people strip down and they go into the freezing cold water so since it's post-Christmas, maybe this is Harry's polar bear plunge, but he jumps in to go get the sword and the locket reacts. It pulls him back up to the top because it wants nothing to do with Gryffindor's sword. And Ron steps in to save the day. Of course, the movie will make it, you know, like a, unclear at first who that person is. You see someone above the ice walking around and then pull Harry out and remove the locket from Harry. And then Harry's struggling with his vision at first, clearing out his glasses. He thinks, like, Hermione, how did you, you know, like, and then he realized it's Ron. And Ron now has the sword, right? Because uh, Harry pulled up the sword, right? No, or did Ron take the sword out of the water? I mean, I think Ron was just trying to save Harry yeah. and probably took the sword, too, because it needed to come out. They, but they decide, like, they're not going to wait anymore. They're going to do it. And... I love that Harry makes Ron do it. Ron's doubtful. Like he's like, it makes, it affects me more than it affects them. And it's something that Ron has to overcome. And it's also Harry sharing the burden a little bit too, because Ron and Hermione have been with him on this journey. And while he feels like it's his mission to take the Horcruxes out, he, they each take one. Harry doesn't, I don't know. I don't think he destroys that many more i think everybody kind of has a hand in destroying the horcruxes and taking Voldemort out because it is bigger than harry at this point <laughs> it's interesting here because right it's ron's worst fears coming to life right now and it's like a boggart but a boggart only turns into one thing this kind of took shape across a lot of things you see the spiders you see the fear and the doubt that he has that he's unloved by his mother unloved by Hermione he sees his worst fear come to life in front of him with Harry and Hermione like you know making out right in front of him and he has to overcome that and and not let his fears rule I love it's Ron conquering his fear of being inferior 
you know, in his own family and with Harry and Hermione. I do have to say, uh, in the time since seeing this movie, I have seen better, like, mind fucks with a character of, like, playing into their fears or extracting information out of them. Like, Spider-Man Far From Home with Mysterio, you know, like, kind of playing with Harry, uh, not Harry, Peter Parker, and uh, The Haunting of Hill House we just watched recently. Uh, Like, each character gets, like, messed with by the house, you know, in a certain way. And it's, like, playing up with their greatest fears. Uh, So, I mean, this, it's fine. Uh, I just love those versions better. But I do like Ron finally gets a a moment. He destroys a Horcrux with the sword of Gryffindor, because he is a true Gryffindor. I I won't have anybody else say this bullshit nonsense that he's a squibber. He doesn't deserve to be around them. Yeah, you're right. It's absolute bullshit. And I love that Ron coming back, he kind of brought some of the... I keep we keep using the word levity, but I feel like that's what it is. It's such a heavy movie, and there's such heavy things happening that those moments of levity kind of r- relieve the burden just slightly. And I think Ron brings a little bit of that back with him. I really love the moment between Harry and Ron when they're talking, like just kind of like sitting on the bed after they come back together, and um, just them kind of like rebonding i guess or just getting to have that conversation and harry's not mad he's got no hard feelings he's you know ready to to kind of forgive and move on and get the next horcrux i think he's also probably riding the adrenaline high of having destroyed another horcrux yeah so they don't know where the next one is but they're at least reunited now and they uh, took this one out i love hermione seeing ron again and her first reaction is, you complete ass. And she like starts hitting him and then goes up to Harry because they're sharing a wand now. It's like, where's my wand, Harry? And then Harry doesn't want anything bad to happen. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Because she's very angry right now. Uh, and she's con- she continues to be angry at Ron for a while. And, you know, I can relate because if I piss you off and even if I try to inject humor, like I could see Ron trying to inject humor and be like kind of cute. It's like, oh, let's go to the Lovegood's residence. All in favor, raise your hands. And then Hermione and Harry don't. And he's like, okay. I uh, <laughs> yeah. I had that in my notes too. <laughs> when you um, upset me and then you try to be like really nice to me to make up for it. That <laughs> definitely like uh, relate to that. But uh yeah, I also really like in the scene Ron's realization that Dumbledore gave him the Deluminator on purpose because he kind of knew that Ron might lose his way and just needed a little bit of guidance back. And the one last thing I'll say before we end this act is uh, Harry, uh, Ron gives Harry a new wand, just a disposable one to use. And Harry just was like, just practicing using it. It's like, I'm going to uh, raise this little candle flame up. And then he says, Engorgio, and it goes... It's like reducto, 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 or like to or reducio to make it, you know, small again. It's like a, it's kind of hard to control because it's not his wand. So it's it's like trying out a new car and the brakes are not quite the same as the car before, and you just like your car comes to a halt or it doesn't uh, like go. It's too sensitive or not sensitive enough. I love that. I didn't actually like remember that from previous ones, but that was a very funny moment that I appreciated. So where does Act 3 begin, hon? So Act 3 starts at the Lovegood Homestead and ends with the end of the film. So this is our final act. So the trio heads to Luna's house to see her dad, Xenophilius. So he's the editor of the Quibbler, it says on their their front door. And he acts very strange upon... 
you know, when they meet him, he's very strange about it. Like he almost doesn't recognize Harry and co. Um, he almost wants them to like piss off, you know, get out of here. Um, very distant. He's looking into the windows all the time. You can see as soon as they come in, like a crow flies out, you know, like as if it's delivering a message somewhere. And then at the very end, of course, he refuses to let them leave because that's the only way they can find it. He can get Luna back. I'm assuming this is the, in the middle of the the winter holidays. Because wouldn't Luna otherwise just be at school? Yeah, I think so. Because he was wearing the necklace of the Deathly Hallows symbol, and they see that symbol pop up many times, including in Dumbledore's book where he's writing a letter to Grindelwald, and it's got the three symbols in there. Uh, so they ask him about it, and it quickly turns turns to the story, uh, was it the Tale of the Three Brothers, which is also in the Tales of Beetle the Bard. Harry's the only one who doesn't know what's going on there with that story, so Hermione reads it to them. I like this storybook shift to tell the story. I thought it was a very interesting way to do it. It's not something we've ever seen in the movies before, but I think that it was it was a nice way to to tell a different part of the story. I wouldn't have wanted to see like a live action version of the brothers telling it so like the illustrations were really really worked here um death is described as cunning which is a slytherin trait which i thought was interesting and you learn that you know that the two selfish brothers um who asked for for things ended up getting exactly what was coming to them but the third brother the smartest brother who we can assume that harry descended from with the potters uh i i think that's the one that's buried in godric's hollow must have been you know harry's great 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 grandfather somewhere down that line uh but yeah he chose the invisibility cloak and if you were to possess all three we don't see in the story that anybody possesses possesses all three you at would, least not yet yes not yet you would be the um master of the deathly hollows actually now that i think about it i think harry possesses all three already and let i'll get to my point you want to talk about it later no he does not physically have the wand but there's a progression of events oh wait no uh okay not yet uh somebody else is the owner of the wand and it's not dumbledore if you get what i'm saying and it's not no i do i read the books dude and i get it so okay so he has two of the three. He doesn't know that he has one. Of, he definitely has one of them. He's had the whole time the cloak, which was passed down from son, from father to son. So it was interesting. The elder wand, the first item, resembles power. The person who, the brother who took that, you know, killed one of his enemies and then was drunk with power. But then someone at the bar he was like at, like killed him in his sleep and took his wand and death took him the next brother wanted a resurrection stone to humiliate death. It's like, well, I can still speak to my loved ones after they've passed on. So death becomes almost irrelevant, right? However, after speaking to like his fiance who passed away before they can get married, he's so like sad and depressed that he takes his own life to be with her. And I love the visual of the rope that he used to hang himself is actually just string and death like pulls him up because he's taken the second brother. And the third one, you know, doesn't, he hides from death all of his life, but he only dies when he passes the cloak on to his son. And then I love this quote, then greets death as an old friend and went with him gladly departing this life as equals. Ooh, what a great quote. 
And of course, that's what Harry has now. And they, everyone looks at Harry. It's like, oh, I have the invisibility cloak. Is that a one of a kind item or is there more cloaks? Yeah, I was going to say, I think wizarding, wizarding um, visibility cloaks aren't uncommon to the wizarding world, but none of them function the way that Harry's does. It's it's a unique one. I think somewhere in the books, Fred and George say to him like, oh, wow, I've never seen one like this. Like it always wears off at some point. So it's definitely a special one that you can, you know, make that assumption. Uh, sorry, I'm going to throw in a Lord of the Rings connection. Uh, so Frodo has the ring. Uh, and uh, when they're at that inn and they first meet Aragorn. Sorry, for people who have never seen Lord of the Rings. Aragorn tells them, it's like, I've been able to uh, avoid being seen from time to time if I wish. But to disappear entirely, that is a unique, that's like a a very unique gift like there's something different so like that's the difference between harry's invisibility cloak and ripoff versions right absolutely and then so we see here that saying voldemort brings the death eaters to you and ron was already like okay we should leave something's up they i think they all knew something was off but they really needed those answers and they just narrowly escape death eaters at the Lovegood residence, only to be found by Snatchers, where they land in the forest, which, that's rough. It is. And this scene is filled with so much tension as they run away from them. And you see Ron get caught first, and then it gets to the point where Hermione just realizes, like, there's no way they're getting out of this so she like puts this like uh stunning jinx or something on harry a stinging jinx on harry so that he um so that he's not easily recognized and when they ask him his name he says vernon dudley he's he's also done this i think i talked about this in the third one but in the on the night bus he tells them his name is neville longbottom and now he's vernon dudley uh so it's not like he just like comes up with names off the top of his head he uses names that he like knows about and Hermione gives the name Penelope Clearwater they don't ask Ron who he is maybe they know he's a Weasley I don't know and then one of them notices something on Harry's forehead that makes him question things it's not he's not 100% sure but instead of taking him to the ministry which they would normally do they take him to Malfoy Manor because he has the, that slight suspicion it could be Harry. Because they want to see if he could be identified. And Draco's there. He went to school with Harry. Of course he would be able to recognize him. What I love about this is that everybody there knows that's Harry Potter. And that there's maybe a tiny sliver of doubt. But Ron is also there. And Hermione is also there. It would stand to reason that this guy who they think is kind of maybe Harry Potter is Harry Potter. Draco doesn't want to say it. Bellatrix doesn't want to say it. Wormtail doesn't want to say it. Lucius Malfoy doesn't want to say it. They need somebody to confirm before they call Voldemort because they're fucking afraid of Voldemort. Like, it just, it, it makes no sense that they wouldn't know what, or know who he is. And I think that this is like Draco's opportunity to kind of like stand up and and almost like make up a little bit for what he did by not calling Harry out and this won't be the first time that we see a Malfoy help Harry out going forward but come on like Wormtail lived with Ron basically in his pocket for however many years and they 
of course he's with Harry Potter. Like, they know, but they're just freaking afraid of Voldemort. Everyone except Bellatrix, who kind of... I think she is, too. Oh, she is? Because she says something like, he'll kill us all if you're wrong. And I I think that it's gone to the point when Voldemort's reign, where it's not even fun for her anymore. Like, and it's, yeah, it's even dark for the Death Eaters. Yeah, from that opening scene, no one looks really happy. The Malfoys are very desperate to regain their freedom. You can see Lucius has like like a five o'clock shadow. His hair is not as coiffed as it normally is. He's, you know, his family's in a living hell. They decide to put Harry and Ron, because Draco refuses to identify him. So Harry and Ron are brought down, and Bellatrix is like, fine, I'll just have a little girl-on-girl time with Hermione. It's not, um, she sees God, um... Gryffindor's sword in the hand of one of the snatchers and it's like wait a minute what is that doing here that should be in my vault at Gringotts which will be key for the next one because maybe the vault at Gringotts triggers something for them later but that concerns her and then he said he found it in Hermione's bag so that's why she's like oh we're gonna have a little girl talk and she's gonna freaking torture Hermione that scene is so much rougher in the books because you go down to that basement with Harry and Ron and you hear Hermione scream. I mean, you're reading it, but you can picture it. You can imagine yourself there. Hermione is screaming and Ron is screaming from the basement like, no, let her go. But there's nothing he can do to protect her. Ugh. I remember hearing this in the movie the first time. And last night with you, like that scream is very piercing. It's painful to hear. You know, I think Emma Watson did a good job of what someone being tortured you know, what it would sound like. So Harry and Ron are down there. They see Luna's there. Ollivander's there. Uh, Griphook? That's that's it, right? Uh, Griphook, the goblin, so from Gringotts, who gets brought up for interrogation. It's like, why was my vault taken? They're like, I'll have to ask you, how did the sword even get out? They're trying to determine whether it's actually Godric Gryffindor's sword or if it's a fake. And that's why they got the goblin there because it was goblin made. So he's the one who would know whether it was real or a fake. And even he is hesitant to actually like give them a straight answer. And I think especially because he feels this like possession over a goblin made sword, like it belongs to him. So there's a lot of question as to who that belongs to. But since Snape is the one that set the dough, I imagine he's the one who managed to get it out of Bellatrix's vaults or put a fake in there and hold on to Godric Gryffindor's sword. Which makes sense if he leads Harry to find the sword. Did he put it just thrown in a river? Like, (laughs) that's a weird place to put it. Maybe because no one else would find it. It's like a little hidden place. Just go take it here. So while they're down there, all of a sudden Dobby apparates in, and it makes sense. Like, why would Dobby show up now? Dobby used to be the house elf of the Malfoys, so he knows his way in and out of the Malfoy Manor, right? Aberforth actually sent him to help because Harry, that's when Harry pulls out that piece of a mirror again. So it's very, it's like disconnected here with that mirror, but Harry pulls out that piece of a mirror and he says, help us, please help us. Um, And Aberforth sends Davi to help them. That's why Davi shows up. Gotcha. Okay, that 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 shard, that glass shard of the mirror. Like I still don't fully understand, but he sees someone that looks like Dumbledore, but it's it's actually his brother Aberforth, who we'll see more in the next one. Dobby, like also Wormtail is guarding them. I don't think we see Wormtail after this movie, do we? What happens to Wormtail in the books? Honestly, I can't remember. I feel like he must have died, and 
the Battle of Hogwarts or before then or Voldemort got sick of him or one of the other Death Eaters got sick of him. But yeah, I we don't see him again. And they so Dobby takes Luna and Ollivander away. And <laughs> Luna says to him, whenever you're ready, sir. And Dobby's like, I like her. It's so cute. And then Dobby says, meet me at the top of the stairs in 10 seconds. He then stuns Wormtail to help them get out. Like, he's knocked out, but I think that's Wormtail's exit from this story. I guess his importance was really in the middle when it was revealed he was the actual, not, it was him not serious, and then him bringing Voldemort back to life. After that, Wormtail doesn't really have a part in the story anymore. So he's out. So Dobby gets a Harry and Ron out of the prison in the basement. And they see Hermione still being tortured. And I love how Ron's like, I'm not waiting around anymore. He just jumps in and Harry follows after him. And they, no, Harry forcefully takes Draco's wand from him. Like not with magic, just like rips it out of his hand. And Draco just like, just like a little boy stunned, doesn't know what to do. Uh, which is important because now Harry has disarmed Draco. And if you remember in Half-World Prince, Draco disarmed Dumbledore of his wand, which we now know is the Elder Wand. So... That will play into the end game of this story. I feel like in the books, it was you had to actually like disarm them with Expelliarmus, not just fucking pull a wand out of somebody's hand. That doesn't make you the owner of somebody's wand because you just fucking took it from them. You actually have to disarm them and take it. So that I I don't I don't think that's like fully explained in the movies, but it did. Yeah, I didn't like that. Okay, you can't just steal it from them. You have to disarm them. Well, you both have to have wands out. It's like a fair duel almost. Gotcha. There's an important piece of this scene where I don't think I ever really caught this before, but there's a piece of Bellatrix's long wild hair that falls onto Hermione. And um, I mean, it, it, obviously something might have got like, I my hair falls out all the time, like strands of it everywhere. I get it. You look at the vacuum after like it. It's just it's the nature of having hair, I guess, long hair. <laughs> But um, there's a, it slowly falls on to Hermione in that scene. Um, and I really like that because that's a good setup for later. I love that Lucius gets stunned twice. He's thrown across the room with like a stunning spell because he, like, he's just treated like trash because he, you know, for what he's done. And then there's just this brilliant comical moment where Bellatrix thinks she has the upper hand. She has a knife in her hand. She's holding Hermione. And you hear this creaky noise. And you look up and you see Dobby just like slowly unscrewing the, the chandelier from there. And then it falls and Beltrix runs and Hermione falls out of the way. Ron kind of like picks her up and they all gather and Bellatrix says, how dare you obey or disobey your master? And Dobby says, Dobby has no master. And then they get ready to operate again but she throws the knife and she just waits and watches to see if it's actually going to hit its target and then looks so satisfied when it does she doesn't know who it hits but i, I do love that uh dobby was like oh i didn't mean to kill you just serious just maim or seriously injured just like when he didn't mean to kill harry in chamber of secrets but the knife does connect and as they apparate and you can give me a little bit of background maybe in the next part where they apparate too. But Dobby's the one who gets hit with that knife and uh, this is, and he dies. But before he dies, he says a few things to Harry. He says, uh, such a beautiful place to be with friends. 
where is the fucking Dittany now? Why? <laughs> and that's what Harry says. He says to Hermione, come on, Hermione must have something. Hermione must have something. And she just doesn't have anything. I think her bag was taken from her. So, like, they've lost everything at this point. But just, it's so... He sacrificed himself for Harry in year two. He put himself in danger to convey a message that he should not have conveyed in his position. And then Harry was the one to ensure that he got his freedom and uh, Dobby had all these beautiful years of freedom and getting to wear whatever clothes he wanted working in Hogwarts and it's just he came out to save Harry again and Harry's like I, I want to bury him and I want to bury him properly with a shovel and everything and it's just so uh, hits you in the feels. I, I, I was w- watching you watch that I could see your eyes tearing up and I wish I had more time with Dobby. I mean, he's great in two, but more time with him throughout the series to really feel his death. Uh, but I, I love seeing, you know, you so drawn in by this moment right here. And I do love how Harry, like, turns to Hermione, and he's, like, so desperately pleading, like, help me! You know, like, he, he doesn't know what to do, and Dobby dies in his arms. Um, Luna comes to him, because Luna was also rescued. She uh, helps uh, close Dobby's eyes um, to put him to rest, and they bury him without magic. Harry's very keen on not using magic to bury him. The story ends there, very bleak, you know, that they were able to take out three Horcruxes and escape Malfoy Manor, but they've lost another key member of their, their family, you know, in their fight against Voldemort. The last thing you do see, though, is Voldemort going to get the Elder One, where he now knows that it is, buried with Dumbledore and he has what he's looking for which is scary but it's not the first time we've seen Voldemort with the upper hand where a movie ends either so we end the first half of the Deathly Hollow story which I think is chapter 23 or 24 so we're like two-thirds of the way into the book it appears that Voldemort now has the edge he needs to beat Harry in combat on to part two the glorious end to this story I'm really bad with cliffhangers. I don't like them. That is why I tend to be a binger when it comes to TV shows is because I gotta know what's gonna happen. And this is, it made me like, we finished this at 9.30 last night and I almost just wanted to stay up for the rest of the night to finish it because I I know what happens, but I just don't like cliffhangers. I want to finish my story. This, like, when Tom watched The Hunger Games for the first time and I was showing them to him, we stayed up to, like, 2 in the morning watching most of them because I just, like, I've seen it already, but I'm the one who can't handle cliffhangers. So we did not watch it last night, but we will watch it again tonight on our new couch. Uh, But, yeah, so, um, babe, who is your notable character this time around? I mean, this character's probably deserved it for a while, but they really shined here. They... Not that the notable character needs to save the day every time. They could just be an interesting character introduced or th- that steals the scene they're in. Um, but it's Hermione for me. It's got to be Hermione. She saved the day way too many times here. Uh, she had all these hideout locations, which tie back to her childhood, which is very sweet, uh, and the protection spells. She had the like the right ideas at the right moment. She did the stinging jinx on Harry to buy time. Uh, she was investigating the Deathly Hollow symbol and figuring out the horcrux thing so just typical hermione and like the book reader she accumulates information she has all her like 
items like they didn't need to save Ron when he got splinched, which looks so painful. He was like, uh, uh, and you can see like his arms like red, like a lot of skin got ripped off and her very large purse. You stick your hand into, um, uh, she also had a lot of emotional strength, not be- being the only one of the three, not like negatively affected by Lucket. That could have made her more depressed, but I think of the three, she took it in the best saving Harry and Ron and the decision, the heartbreaking decision to disconnect her parents, you know, in order to save them, she had to erase herself out of their lives. And unlike Ron, she, she doesn't get the same updates as he does, like through the radio. It's not like they're going to announce that, you know, the, the muggles went missing. They don't know on um, the radio either. So she's entirely disconnected from them and just has to hope that they're okay. I mean, it all turns out for the better for the trio, but does she ever like try to reconnect with her parents after all this is over or you can't? I think that was always her plan is to find her parents after and give them uh, their memories back. But and she couldn't do that until everything was done if she, and, and unless she survived. And if she didn't survive, I'm sure she didn't want them to have to live with that. You know, she was willing to do so much, you know, for Harry, the cause, you know, and her parents. She's very willing to put herself on the line. I mean, with the sword that they just happen upon it, but. Even if they did steal it, I don't think she would have snitched either. Um, so I think she's very brave even when she's being tortured by Bellatrix. And she's really the, the one that helps them get through all those months in on the run. You know, if it weren't for her, you know, even Ron brings up, they, they wouldn't last two days without her. And he's right, they wouldn't. She wasn't there for the destruction of the locket, but without her, that none of this would have happened. But yeah, she has to be my character. Who's yours? On that note... My notable character is Ron. <laughs> he, I mean, we start the, the story with him talking Harry down from leaving, like talking sense into Harry, seeing a, a different perspective and keeping Harry almost like in, in line, you know? Again, I think Ron has this subtlety to his bravery that really shows. He's not jumping out there in front of spiders, but he is definitely doing what needs to be done for the greater good. He stepped up for Harry so much. And despite dealing with all of these like internal issues, like his anxiety and feeling unworthy and not good enough, he stuck with it. He stuck with Harry through all of this. There's definitely been moments where it's been too much for him. And that's, I think, why the necklace affected him more. Plus also... He was injured during that time, so he was already in a weakened state. So, like, I, I think that that made the the locket affect him even more. He wasn't physically strong enough to deal with it, and everything just came, like, spilling out in a rage, which is absolutely understandable. There's only so much that we can take as human beings. Harry's let it go before, too. He's gotten, you know, freaking nuts about being upset. He's yelled and he's screamed, and... It's just, I think it's so relatable doing something that you regret when you're mad. You're so upset and nothing else feels right except for doing this one thing that like, as soon as you do it, you realize it's a bad idea, but you're just so freaking mad and and that's relatable. And he walks away and he regrets it the second that he does it. He destroyed that next Horcrux and he deserved that. But he also freaking saved Harry in that moment. He went into an, you know, like ice to save him. He was looking out for his friends, even though he made a mistake and regretted it. He didn't go hiding off somewhere. He was still looking for them. He still had the drive to find them. 
he always had it in him, but, you know, Dumbledore knew that he just needed that little bit of guidance, and that's why the Deluminator belonged to him. We've talked a lot about Harry's issues throughout this series, but, like, Ron has some too, and you definitely see it through the, the locket kind of speaking up. You know, he's sixth out of seven kids. He's not, you know, the girl his mom always wanted. He's not his brothers who are super impressive. He's the best friend of the chosen one. And for the most part, he does remain level-headed. He does express his emotions, but he's also a human being. He saved Tonks in the beginning, and therefore he saved Tonks and Lupin's son, Teddy Lupin. And he's worried about Catamull's wife like that's really sweet he's like oh no my wife like he he's we joked he's like really stepping into that character but he's also like just a genuine person who does care for the well-being he's like sometimes a thick-headed boy but really at the end of the day he is brave he's a good friend to harry he's the voice of reason sometimes and he's stuck by harry for this entire time could have run away after a very dangerous chess game but he didn't he stuck with him through everything i'm glad that you made ron yours because it really explains like how much ron means to you because ron is your favorite character overall in the harry potter series right yeah and i was wondering i was like wow i haven't picked ron for any of the notable characters yet and then it hit me like this is this is where he has his moment to shine. This is where he deserves that notable character award for me. So I'm glad we we picked Hermione and Ron because that's our oh, we see ourselves in. So uh, love you, babe. Love you. I have a theme, but I kind of want to save it for part two because I feel because it was written as one story. But uh, I mean, as a side theme, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on. Uh, you know, Dobby sacrificing his life. Uh, Hermione sacrificing her identity you know to protect her parents uh, as we i talked about with notable character each character has to be able to let go thing like harry has to let go of hedwig and his wand he's like part of himself is being like destroyed in this war so everyone is losing you know maybe not just a sacrifice but the costs of war whether the war is warranted or not you know every conflict like this there's going to be loss and the thing i think with harry's friends too is they're willing to sacrifice themselves everybody in the order of the phoenix they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good here and do what's necessary it's easy to just hide away and let voldemort rule the world but they're all stepping up and doing what needs to be done and willing to to be that sacrifice and i mean there's definitely more of that i get that that's a good side theme hun i gotta ask you a question plot or popcorn so after last week's popcorn i will say that this one was definitely a plot i love this movie i don't know how long it's been since i've actually seen it but it it kept my attention it makes me want to watch it more it makes me want to read the book again i love that they split it into two i think it would have been far too rushed and would not have done the ending to the series justice if they hadn't split it into two it is devastating to have to wait till tonight to watch the next part i struggle with cliffhangers and like i talked about i mean this kind of kicks off deaths in the series those sacrifices like you talked about and while not all of them you know were done you know not all of them had the right feeling behind them just because the characters weren't you know super present in those there 
they were meaningful to the overall series and we know that overall and that's what impacts us they're our favorite characters they're you know the ones who have been there for harry through that this movie it moved very quickly but it held my attention this is the first one that harry is fully trusted to do what he needs to do the order of the phoenix is usually the one like no no no, sit back we got this but this time around they're just paving the way for harry to do what he needs to do and harry's fucking resilient through all of this he's ready to go he wants to take voldemort down this has been his entire life the reason he's with the dursleys the reason he doesn't have parents the reason every year at hogwarts something horrible has happened the reason people he went to school with died is because of, of voldemort and it's just he's so over it and he's so ready to do this and and they have to survive this time around they they're not in hogwarts it's a very different movie there is a lot of waiting around in this in the woods in this movie but the scenes where there is action there's so much tension like you know when they're leaving the ministry when they're in godric's hollow when the snatchers almost catch them it just it's it's such a good blend of everything and i definitely more invested in the plot this time what about you babe coming into this you know being one half of a story one half of a book i was like i feel like this might be my first popcorn but seeing this all come together there's still like a good story and there's i love the focus taking it away from the traditional story structure in the harry potter series where it's like oh we'll go to the dursleys and then we're at hogwarts and mischievous business at hogwarts and stopping a plot or learning something more about harry's connection with voldemort you don't get that you get a really focused story on just the trio this time as they're on the run i mean there's other characters that what a beginning with them the seven harrys like that's a great beginning to this story i love that it was such a different story from the rest it was a small focused storytelling so you get to really learn the big three all over again in a different light they're not at school anymore They've decided their seventh year. They're not going to school. It's it's a it's a different story now. They're on the run. It, it's a war. You know they they might even not even finish what they started. I love the terror during the Godric's Hollow sequence with Nagini. Like I thought that was very thrilling and terrifying. Dobby's death. It was very sad. You know we didn't get to spend too much time with him throughout the entire series besides two. Like I really wish we had more time with him, but I, I still felt like they handled the death very well. And I love the introduction of more lore, you know, the Deathly Hollows that makes you the master of death if you have all three in your possession. I just thought, what a, what a cool uh, device, what a, and then the symbol they create around it, just, just more lore. I just, I just love that even in the, toward the end of the story, there's still cool things to add in that tie into everything. There's definitely things like it was slow at parts and certain deaths I felt like we could have gotten more out of it to really feel it. But this story is still very much engaging, and I, I gotta give it a plot. Got to. I'm not surprised. That's why we started with this series. But you can tune in next week, and we will be talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2. And yes, I feel very bad that we are leaving you with a little bit of a cliffhanger, so you can wait to see how we're gonna address next week's but if you like this episode please don't forget to uh, rate subscribe and review we would so appreciate it and we'll be back next week bye
I guess that's it for now. Bye.